The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now for our featured presentation. All right, Phil, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here, Dana. Thanks so much for having me back. The reason I wanted to have you back was when I initially asked you to sort of go over the filmmaker's journey from the inspirations to film school and sort of tie it into you got to meet your hero, he offered you a job, end of episode, story's over. Well, that's not the case at all. I got so many emails and people tweeting to me and sending me messages on Instagram going, no, no, wait, wait, wait. I want to know the story's just beginning. And so I said, well, I have to ask you back. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pick it up where we left off. And where we left off was you were in the office of Steven Spielberg. He was talking about Last Chance Dance. He had seen the film. He's offering you a project. Take it from there. So it was pretty crazy because I had gone to this meeting just thinking I was going to meet him and shake his hand and we talk a little bit about film school and maybe I get to ask him a few questions and uh, that'd be that. I, I certainly had n no indication that it was about potentially working for him or directing something for him. And, and uh, so we talked for about half an hour and I told him about Jaws and my love of Jaws and how I'd taken, as I mentioned to you in our, our, our last discussion, the photographs of, of the movie and he was kind of like taken aback and, and he's, we hit it off. We hit it off. I mean, he's, a, he's really a great guy. He's super easy to talk to. If you love movies, you'll be anyone out there who loves movies would be able to talk to Steven Spielberg for quite a while because he loves him just as much as you'd imagine. And he still lights up like a kid at Christmas when, when discussing film and film history and styles and techniques. And, and of course that's what I was in love with too. So um, it was an easy conversation. And, uh, and after a while, I kind of forgot I was sitting with Steven because we were just like both so excited about movies. And, and then he said, well, listen, you know, I'm doing this show, Amazing Stories. We're just in pre-production on it now. And he said, uh, I'd love for you to direct one of them for me. And I was just stunned. I was speechless. I, I, I was like, what? <laughs> I said, well, here, here's the, he had the script already. He had it sitting right there. And he said, here it is. It's called Santa 85. It's going to be our Christmas special, uh, Santa 85, because the year was, was 1985. Uh, or it was going to be, actually, it was funny. I met Stephen in 84, but it was produced for 85. So we weren't going to shoot it until the following summer. He says, we're going to make this in the summer, shoot it in the summer, and then it'll be released Christmas time 85. So this was probably four, 14 months before it actually came out. I met Stephen in um, October of 84. Of course, I was like, oh, my God, I would be honored and flattered, and I don't even need to read it. The answer is yes. <laughs> and he said, okay, well, well I said, well, take it home and, and, and read it and give us a call tomorrow. And, and of course, I, I went home and, and, you know, ripped right through it as soon as I hit the house. And um, I was still, as I mentioned, I think I was still living with my mom and dad. I mean, I'd just, just gotten out of school graduated that year. And um, so called him back up the next day and said yes. And that was the beginning. You mentioned it was almost 14 months before Santa 85 actually aired. That's right. Tell me what's going through your mind and how the first few weeks after you've said yes, but you're not filming the next day after you say yes. Oh, there's, yeah. a, there's a period of time in between saying yes and actually starting the job. 
What is going yeah. through your mind during that time period? Like you've, you've accepted a job to direct something for Steven Spielberg. You haven't started the job yet. What, what, what are those weeks and months leading up to? What are those like? Probably the craziest single year of my career was um, leading up to my first professional job. Because you see, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have, you know, any kind of legal representation like you're supposed to have. I didn't know anything. I knew no one in the film business. So imagine that the first person, the first professional contact you have is Steven Spielberg <laughs> and him being my hero growing up and him being the one amongst others who inspired me to become a director. I, it was very, very surreal, sort of scary because it's kind of like that be careful what you wish for thing. Like nothing negative came out of it, of course, but I couldn't, it just was like too good to be true. You know what I mean? Like, wait, 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 you know, I'm, I'm waiting for like the house to fall on me, like a wicked witch of the West. You know, it's like something's going to just fall out of the sky and end my leg. I was, I was very keen on looking for pianos falling from buildings <laughs> because I just thought the luck here is way, way off the charts. So something bad is bound to happen soon. And, but, the, but the crazy, so the reason why it was the craziest year, besides my kind of emotional, psychological state, was the industry caught wind, the industry at large caught wind that here's this kid that's come out of film school, had this movie, somehow Steven Spielberg saw it and immediately offered him a job on this, what was a very, you know, exciting new series and the first one he'd ever produced. And so my phone, and this is actually my parents' phone because, and, and uh, I don't even know how these people get the number, but you know, we were listed actually. I guess that's how they got it. <laughs> Directory assistants, now that I think about it, was ringing off the hook. It was insane. Agents, managers, lawyers, executives, uh, producers, you name it, because as we all know, now more than ever, and I was very, very naive to this too, Dana, very. I was just, I didn't really understand perception, as we know, particularly in Hollywood, but now I would say quite a bit in our society at large, but always in Hollywood is much greater than the truth. So let's strip it down to the truth. Here's the truth, I'd done nothing. I'd made a student film. A lot of people make student films. You can have your opinion on the student film, uh, if you guys want to see, you know, if you think it was worth it, it's on my website, Last Chance Dance. You can actually see it on philjuanodirector.com. Um, so there it is. And you'll see, yeah, it's cute and it's charming and, it's, you know, it's sweet and all that. But it isn't like I made the Citizen Kane of student films. I mean, it's it's fine. It's not, I mean, you know. But because Steven Spielberg had given me the golden seal of approval, that was all they needed. That was all they needed. In fact, it then meant I was going to be the next Steven Spielberg. I, I never said that. I never promoted that. I, you'll never find a quote of me saying that anywhere. I've never even said it in my head, let alone out loud. But they thought it. And everyone was after me. I started getting offered movies. You know the very first movie I ever got offered? Even before Steven Spielberg offered me a movie, which became Three O'Clock High. Teen Wolf. Oh, Michael J. Fox, Teen Wolf. Yep. Yep. Teen Wolf. And I got this call. Will you meet Michael J. Fox? Now, he's still on Family Ties. He's done Back to the Future or is doing Back to the Future in that area. I guess 84 He's probably maybe still doing it. Yeah, because in fact, when I was at Amblin, he was making it. I think so. I think uh, Back to the Future was after Teen Wolf now that I think about it because 
Um, yeah, because I remember when they let Eric Stoltz go and then they brought in him. And I was at Amblin at that time. And, and so when I met Michael, I wasn't at Amblin. So I go and I meet Michael J. Fox and he's in the room and we want you to direct this and the studio and it's a green light and we're going to go make it. And I'm sitting there going, and I have to tell you guys, I was, I was sitting there thinking, based on what? <laughs> what are you guys? And I'm smiling through my teeth thinking, what are you maniacs doing? I've only directed a student film. I mean, at least Spielberg was smart enough to go do a half an hour TV show. And his theory was, uh, uh, was he said, look, I did, I did a lot of night galleries. I did, and then built up the, the duel, and then Sugarland Express, et cetera. And, and he said, and I think it's a really good idea for you to like, get your feet wet, don't. And this is again, again, think how different that would be now. Like now, if that happened, they'd be offering me like a Marvel movie, right? Because what, you, you make a student film, hell, make a $200 million film. But back then it was still a little bit ABC. Now it's like A, you get to do Z, right? <laughs> And uh, right, it's funny, but it's really true. A guy does a really good indie at Sundance, and you know he's making Star Wars, um, which is really not a great. I don't. I don't think a great pattern for anybody. But uh, uh, so, I declined Teen Wolf, and well, first of all, I declined Teen Wolf also because I just couldn't picture a werewolf playing basketball. It was. I just. I couldn't. You gotta remember, this is pre-CG, this is all in camera, flying them on wires and stuff like that. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if that should be my first thing. <laughs> I didn't get it. What did you ultimately think of Teen Wolf when you finally saw the film? Did you ever say, oh, oh I could have done that or I would have done this differently? Or no, I thought, oh my God, thank God I didn't do that. Okay. I could never have done that. Okay. <laughs> I really, you know, it's funny, but later on in my career, I was offered the movie Ghost, you know, and twice. And, you know, as we all, they offered me, I turned it down. They got to me more. And uh, then they they had me meet with her and then I offered it to me again. And then I said no again. And, you know, it went on to be a massive, massive hit at the time. And I went and saw it and I was like, I'm glad I didn't do it because honestly, I wouldn't have made the movie they made. Therefore, it isn't apples to apples. I wouldn't have made the hit. The movie I would have made would have been much darker, not as funny. The script was darker that I read. Um, they definitely amped it up. You know, uh, the, the, the director was a comedy director that they brought in. And, uh, you know, Whoopi Goldberg became a huge, huge part of it that I don't know if I would have seen that um, opportunity. And and I, I, I think I would have made a, a mediocre version of Ghost and maybe not even a, maybe a flop. I really was like, huh, all those choices. Like I would have seen them doing the, um, you know, you know, love, my love. They'd have been doing the, you know, the ceramic thing and the wheel. And I've been like, cut, 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 cut. All right. We got it. This is ridiculous. You can't be doing the. Come on, guys, we can't do the clay and the hands and the music. This is embarrassing. And then, of course, it's the most famous freaking thing, you know, even even by the way, I didn't even like ditto. There's this thing in the movie. They go, no. And I was like, no, we got to cut the ditto out. (laughs) I'd have ruined it. Right. So so I I would have not ruined it for me, but I'd have ruined it for everyone else. So I think that, you know, often it's very, very rare that I'll see something I had a shot at and go and go, I could have done it better. Or I'd have made a better hit out of that or, oh, you know, that was a bad decision. I mean, there's a few movies I, I passed on that I really wish, wished I, I had done because I, I just just because I, I, I should have. But but that not not in the case of Teen Wolf. I didn't I, I thought that that so people are coming at me like that. And the most convincing guy during that period was um, Jeffrey Katzenberg. So Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner had just moved over from Paramount to rejuvenate Disney. And Jeffrey, Jeffrey brought me over and because he had heard about Spielberg, you know, 
And so he got a hold of the student film and he brought me over and oh my God, I mean, that guy is a very tenacious, convincing individual. And he just hammered me and he, um, and I had written a script when I got out of school that summer before I met Steven Spielberg, I wrote a script. I told him about the script. I told Jeffrey about the script and, and he said, we'll, uh, we'll buy it. I was like, what's that? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm going to read it, you know, things, you know. And so they did, and they they bought it, and they gave me an office at Disney. So now I've got – I'm in the animation building over there, which is, by the way, empty. And literally in the building at that time is, is Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, who was another guy that went over there and ran it. He unfortunately died in a helicopter crash, too young, and then Jeffrey. And this is before he even had VPs or anybody. It was just the three of them, uh, a really lovely business affairs woman that I got to know, and me. And the rest of it, it was empty. Like Disney was dead. People don't realize Disney in the 80s. If you ever want to go back and just do a little Google research on it, Disney in 1982, three was absolutely a ghost town. They weren't making live action movies. They weren't making anime. They were dead in the water. And uh, literally a ghost town. And, and, and I went in there and I'm not kidding you. It's a three-story building, the old animation building, original Disney cells everywhere. And uh, I got a, like a little, I had a closet. I mean, it wasn't like a big sweeping, you know, I had a little closet office, just me and a desk. And I went in there and I, I worked on my script. But what's, what's the fallout of that? So now the town hears that Jeffrey Katzberg, who had been on a huge role over at Paramount, and Eisner have picked me. Spielberg have picked me, and now that causes like the fire to burn even brighter. And you know, finally, I got agents at of course at CAA, and you know, uh, um, Spielberg introduced me to his lawyer. So I have Spielberg's lawyer, and I have the you know these big agents at CAA, and you know Mike Ovitz at the time, and all that stuff, and I have these meetings, and um, it was uh, very very unnerving. Very unnerving because I knew that it wasn't based on anything real, but at the same time, it's exactly what I wanted, you know, or so I thought. And so it's really, it's, it's a really, uh, uh, disconcerting, weird experience. And I mean, we're talking, people are taking me to lunches and breakfasts and dinners. I got invited to the wedding of the head of Warner Brothers, the, the guy running Warner Brothers gets married. I'm invited to his wedding. I, I've met him like once or twice. I mean, it was very nice, but I'm like, why am I at this wedding? And, you know, Katzenberg takes me to the Golden Globes and sits me next to him at the table. And I'm like, what on earth? And so I kind of got, frankly, paraded around, like kind of like a mascot, I think, more than anything. And then if we want to like look back on it and talk about regrets, I didn't take control of it. I let it control me. I was too young. I was too naive. I was too inexperienced. I didn't understand the business. It's very, very interesting in film school. They don't teach you about the business at all, at all. They teach you about filmmaking. They teach you about directing. They teach you about screenwriting. They, they teach you the history. You'll get to know, you know, the whole, all the technical stuff, but they never say, okay, here's what agents do. Here's what managers do. Here's what studio executives do. Here's what producers do. Here's what the lawyers do. Here's the, how the deals are structured. Here's, I, at one point, I was also working on a, a script called Road Trip with a film school friend of mine. And Ivan Reitman, who had just released Ghostbusters, called 
called me into his office. So I met with him and all his guys. I pitched him road trip. He says, what are you working on? I'd already sold, my other script was uh, entitled A Town Called Chance. So I'd already sold A Town Called Chance to Disney. So he said, what else do you have? And I said, well, I'm working on this thing. It's still just, you know, outline form called road trip. And he said, tell me. So I pitched it to him. They like it was a comedy. They liked it. And he then offered me a three picture deal at his company at Warner Brothers. Remember, I have not yet directed The Amazing Story. He said, you'll make three movies for me. I'll produce them. We'll start with Road Trip. And I was like, wow. I mean, again, like you're like, wow, but wow. Uh, okay, I guess this is. And it was really cool. I mean, I really, I've been, again, they're all being nice to me. Like no one's being, you know, it wasn't like anyone was being intimidating or anything. They just, I was intimidated though. And, and just by who they were. Oh my God, I remember it's the summer of Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. It's the summer of who you're going to call the first one. I mean, it's off the charts. And uh, so now I've got Spielberg, Katzberg, and Ivan Reitman. And the world of comedy, Reitman was the Spielberg, you know. I mean, he did Animal House. He produced, not direct, but he produced Animal House, one of my all-time favorite comedies ever. So I'm dying, you know. Oh, you got to meet Billy Murray. You got to meet da 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 I met Bill Murray. I'm, it's, just, it's crazy shit. And, but then I found out that he wanted me to be exclusive three pictures. And I was like, oh, and I said, so now I had Spielberg's lawyer, you know, now I had the lawyer guy at this point, this is six months in or so. And I, I said, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I know exclusive means, but like, will I be, so that means you can only make your first three movies for him. And I said, oh, so let's figure this out. Movies take about two years minimum. So two to six years. And let's just say it takes, you know, a year here and there to figure it out. So six, seven years, I'm in business from here. I'm at square zero. I'm about to go make the show for Steam, which I haven't done yet. I've already got offices at Disney. And now this guy wants to be exclusive to him for six, seven years. So I, I ended up passing on that, which made Ivan very upset. And that was my first experience at the uh, negative side of saying no, especially when you haven't done anything. What happens when you say no? When you say you got they upset, you. they, they do- call you. They tell you. Oh yeah. Really? Oh sure. Don't you know what you're doing? Oh my God, this is an offer I've never given to anybody. This. Do you realize what you're passing up? You know, nobody else out there is going to give you three movies. This means if your first movie is a flop, you still get to make a second movie and a third movie. I'm giving you. And by the way, all of it's true. All of it's true. And I just said, Ivan, I, I can't, I can't commit for seven years. Like I just can't. I don't know where I'm going to be in seven years. I'm only 23. So from 23 to 30, I'm, I'm in this. And what if you and I don't agree on the movies? We, you know, I'd have never gotten to make State of Grace. I'd never have gotten to make Rattle and Home. I'd never made Three O'Clock High. Those are the movies all made all between in those years from 23 to 30. And, you know, and I knew Ivan had a certain brand. I didn't really want to do it. He's talking about, you know, we'll give you, you know, we got into a meatball sequel coming up. And I'm like, meatballs might not be my thing. So I had to say no. I at least was smart enough to know that wasn't, and I've never regretted that because, and, and I stayed, and then you know what? He got over it too. Well, it's kind of funny. What you learn is they get mad, they get upset. And then like a month later, like, Phil, it's like it never happened, you know, because again, I thought, oh, well, he hates me for life. Like, oh my God, that's it. He's going to despise me and think I'm an asshole for the rest of my life. And then, you know, I saw him a month later and he invited me to on the set of Legal Eagles and da 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 da. And so it's really, but was also perplexing, right? Because he seemed legitimately upset. And then later on, He's talking about other projects. So it's it's kind of water off a duck's back, but it doesn't feel like it at the time. Gotcha. 
Now, what about personal relationships leading up to directing amazing stories? Uh, not so much with your parents, because, you know, they've been with you every step of the way, but, but friends that you had and maybe new friends that sort of just appeared, uh, you know, after your name sort of got out there. Let's start with the friends that you had, maybe some of the relationships you had in film school and all of this is happening to you. What's, what's happening? Yeah. Well, it was the, um, the DP that shot my student film. His name was Robert Brinkman. It was great because, um, he had never shot a movie, so I couldn't bring him on to, I mean, obviously amazing stories that already hired their own DPs. And when I got three o'clock high, I couldn't bring him on to that, but I did bring him on to rattle and hum and Robert shot all the black and white and the documentary footage with he and I did each camera each on the dock. So he got to travel and do the U2 show with me and do the black and white with me. And then he and I did a, uh, several videos for you two together, the the song one and who's going to ride your wild horses and when love comes to town. Um, so he and I maintained a, a good relationship for, you know, a solid eight, nine, 10 years after that and uh, did some commercials together and stuff like that. Another guy named Mike Galen, who was my editor on my student film, he and I developed a, a script for Disney together. It didn't go, but I was able to bring him in and, and we co-wrote uh, something together. And I was always eager. He ended up deciding he didn't want to pursue the, the film business in the end. Um, he moved back east. Those two guys were kind of my closest friends coming out of film school. I was I was able to kind of like, you know, bring in and, and be a part of things. And I would show them my cuts and I would show, you know, so it was actually cool because it wasn't a weird thing and that it was like, oh, Phil now is a Spielberg. I mean, I was still like, at first I lived at home and then I got an apartment with my sister you know, so I'm sharing an apartment with my sister in Pasadena. It wasn't like I was suddenly, you know, in Stephen's guest house in Beverly Hills, you know, <laughs> drinking champagne. It wasn't, I was still driving a car with 120,000 miles on it. And, and I was still, you know, I had made no money. I mean, nothing I'm describing, not until I, I first, my first paying job was, was Santa 85, which was in uh, July of 85. So I'm still, you know, waiting on, on my paid opportunity. And I got paid, I actually got paid some for um, a town called Chance uh, at Disney as well. So I had a little bit of money, but but it wasn't like I was suddenly Richie Rich and, and you know, hanging out uh, at the big restaurant of the day, Spago. You know, so it was, it was uh, you know, I was still eating Del Taco and uh, driving my broke down car and um, living with my sister. And it was not very glamorous on any level at all. All these glamorous people were bugging me, but... But, it, you know, I still hung out with the same friends. I still did. You know, and that really I would say that was the tr the case all the way up through moving to New York for State of Grace. So it really wasn't until 1989, some six years later, because I moved to New York and I stayed in New York for three years. And so then at that point, my life changed a lot. Um, that was really kind of the turning point of, you know, my, my next phase of relationships began when I moved to New York. So it really was was actually um, I, honestly not that traumatic or dramatic, but I was able to bring some people. You know, I remember Mike, when I did my second main story is the doll. I mean, like Mike Galen, the other, like I said, will you come over with me and let's go to the studio. And I got them to open up the sound stages on the weekend, the week before I was going to shoot. And he and I wandered through all the sets. It was mostly on sets and that they built. And I walked him through my shot list and said, I'm going to do that. And we did like a dress rehearsal of my shot list. And so, you know, it was like still very film schooly to me. You know, the whole thing, I mean, I edited Rattle and Hum and, and uh, again, I'd bring my friends over and show them stuff. And, you know, so it was still a very um, 
positive, you know, close knit deal. And uh, I wish that again, I'll say this again, that if had I taken control of my career somewhere in there, you know, somewhere, you know, after after the two amazing stories, really, I'd have loved to have created, you know, a more consistent team of people to work with that had been at film school with me or that I'd met along the way in the early days and, and try to make my own movies. And, and I wasn't encouraged to do that. No one suggested I do that. Although I'd written a couple of scripts, it was always easier to take the ones they were ready to make. I had this one great script I worked on with a friend from film school um, called All Shook Up, which is about a female Elvis Presley impersonator. Um, it was fantastic. as really my, my favorite script of that era. And, uh, you know, we didn't get it made. Actually, Spielberg uh, picked that one up from us at, at Universal, but we never got it made. Somehow lost the script. I'd still have to dig that up. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, because it's not really unfortunate, but I didn't have the vision. I lacked the vision to see like Aronofsky saw or to see like the Coen brothers saw or to see like um, Paul Thomas Anderson saw or to see like David Lynch saw. And I'm not comparing myself to those filmmakers. I'm just saying they had the vision to pursue their own brand of storytelling, their own brand of filmmaking. They believed in themselves. They didn't take on studio gigs. They created it. They stuck by it. They fought for it. They struggled for it. They got it done. And therefore, they're respected as the you know visionary original filmmakers they are. I, on the other hand, took studio gigs and made the most of them, but did not pursue a singular, unique vision or voice that looking back at my career, I wish I had. And if I was going to give advice to anybody doing it now would be follow your voice, follow your vision, follow your point of view. Uh, sure. Take, if you know, if you need to earn a living, you know, take jobs because everyone's got to earn a living. And if you have opportunities, take them, but keep your eye on your ball, on what you want to do with storytelling, what you want to do with your own point of view, rather than serve other people's points of view or try to, or try to bend those stories to yours, which is much, much harder to do because you don't have control all the time, which is a much longer, but that, that was really throughout my whole career. That's been, that's a theme. And, you know, it's pretty tough once you get locked into serving other people's, you know, uh, projects, it's, it's really, tough to get them back onto the track of, no, 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 wait, I want to do my own thing. They're like, but that's not, you know, that's not your brand, man. Right. Whereas if Paul Thomas Anderson says, you know, I'm going to make a movie in Swahili, they're like, ooh, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's interesting. What, ooh, Paul's going to do a Swahili movie. How does that go? Hmm, let's check. I want to read that. Tarantino, another one, obviously. I mean, we all know the filmmakers that have created their, you know, their brand, their vision, their their point of view, and and my hat is 100% off to them for doing it right. Now I want to bring it back to Santa '85. Sorry, that was quite a digression <laughs> from what happened that year, but I don't no, know. Yeah, no, right. no, and we're going to get back to that. That little phase that you've mentioned, because there were all those opportunities, and instead of saying, "Well, I did say it to Jeffrey," I did say, "I want to do a town called Chance," and that was my vision at the time. That was my point of view. That was an original script inspired by uh, several Bruce Springsteen songs, to tell you the truth. And uh, the Rattlesnake Speedway in the Utah desert was in there. For those Bruce Springsteen fans out there, you might you might know that one. And um, I didn't stick to my guns and do it. And I should have. And, and I think it would have been a really, really charming, very last picture show in tone. 
set in the desert and um small town in the desert town was called chance and um he lost control of it i mean there, there's a movie out there called the big picture starring kevin bacon yeah that movie it's about a young film school student who suddenly gets all hyped up his crazy dp friend and his girlfriend and uh they actually used the girl from my student film the girl that played alicia and my student film is in it anyway they use talent for my student film and the kid tries to pitch this movie and remember they change all the locations of the movie and they want to take the movie and put it up in Maine or something like that. And well, let's just say that's what they wanted to do with my desert movie. Wanted to move it to Maine. Let's just say there are some <clears throat> parallels uh, in um, that movie to my experience. What would it take to get that movie made today? Town Call Chance? Yeah. Huh. Oh, I don't, you know, unfortunately... I don't think I could get, I couldn't get it made. What could get it made? You know, again, you need, um, it's young kids, you know, it's high school kids about to embark on college. So it isn't like really it's star driven. Um, I, I just don't even know how those small movies get made anymore. I mean, you know, you go out on an iPhone with a bunch of friends. That'd be my, that'd probably be the quickest way. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. Just, just curious because you know, you know, as I, the constant optimist. I always like to say, well, never say never on anything. No, yep. So, true. but mm. I want I want to come back to Santa eighty five. Okay. Okay. So I I'm curious now. Let's okay. First, explain to maybe the younger listeners exactly what Amazing Stories was. So Amazing Stories was an anthology series where every episode was its own little narrative. Um, he had great directors come in. He had Martin Scorsese, he had Bob Zemeckis, he had Clint Eastwood. Um, of course, Stephen directed a couple. I got to watch Stephen. My first experience watching anyone professionally direct was watching Steven Spielberg every single day direct the very first Amazing, amazing Stories, which was just like mind-blowing, as you can imagine. And he let me just sit there and watch the whole time next to him. It was just bizarre, and and I it was crazy. So... Um, and it was, you know, every week was a new story and they were kind of like, they were the closest thing you could compare to would be twilight zone, but they weren't as dark and creepy as the twilight zone. They were more amazing. They were more fantastical. They were more Spielbergian, if you will. And, um, that was a fun series. I mean, it was the, the reason it, it only lasted two seasons. It was super expensive. Yeah. I mean, it's the only reason it got canceled was just because the costs, you know, Stephen would just say yes to the director. Stephen wouldn't say no, you know, so they'd say, oh, I want to blow this up. Okay, I want to do, you know, this. Okay, you know, he, they flew in reindeer from Canada and snowed in the back lot for me. And, you know, I'm shooting miniatures and it was crazy. You know, you, my episode of Amazing Stories was the most expensive episode, half an hour episode of television in the history of TV to date when I directed it. Okay. All right. So USC Today writes, first time director to shoot most expensive half an hour of television in history. So that's where, that was the expectations I was up against. I've got a series of questions about Santa 85. The first one is, is how turnkey is it for you? Or the opposite of that is how involved are you in the process of casting? I know you mentioned they've already pretty much hired the crew, but how involved in pre-production do you become once you agree to direct the episode? Well, it was awesome because I was very, very, very involved. So the first thing I did was, and this is, you know, the hubris involved in this question is I can only account to youth and uh, uh, lack of understanding the, the system. I immediately asked Stephen if I could rewrite it. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry. For those listening, I was just taking a sip of my coffee that I almost spit he out. He just did a spit so, take. He sorry. just did a legitimate spit take. <laughs> sorry. Uh, he. So I was like, I like it. I love it. And da 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 da. Could I? You know, this wasn't the first phone call, of course. I mean, down the road, I wasn't so dumb as to say yes and then say that. Down the road, I come in and, you know, we start talking about it. I meet the producers and I meet the production designer and I meet, you know, those kinds of people. And I say, I start having ideas and I have ideas for scenes and ideas for stuff. And I said, hey, Stephen, could I just take a shot? And they had read A Town Called Chance as well. I'd already sold it to Disney, but they really liked it and they liked the writing. And so I said, can I take a shot? Well, little did I know the way TV works, right? I mean, it's a writer's room. It's a thing we all know that now. I just thought, like, here's a script some guys wrote, and, you know, I'll put my – because, again, you know, you just – they don't teach you. I don't know. Maybe they do now. Maybe they do now. Boy, they sure should. If anyone from film schools are listening out there, teach your kids about the business too because it is – and now add in streaming and all that as well, not just TV, original TV and theatrical. Anyway, so I I said, hey, can I – he said, sure. Cause that's just the way he is. He was like, sure. <laughs> so I rewrote it and I rewrote it kind of top to bottom. Like I, I mean, I kept all the character. I didn't change the essence of it at all, but I restructured it and changed the big chase scene at the end and had the cop car come head on at the, at the, I did a little homage to ET there, you know, yeah. with the cop car and the, that's on purpose. And, and, uh, the sleigh going over the top of the cop car, blah, blah, blah. And, um, so he, Steven read it and really liked it. And much little did I know that the, Two guys, Josh Brand and John Halsey, who were hugely seasoned uh, television writers who had written it originally and were in charge of, the, of, of writing for the se- season, <clears throat> were not too thrilled. Um, but, I, but see, no one told – I found that out later, you know, but, but at the time, all I hear is Steven's happy. So no one – I was just dealing directly with Steven. Like he was just like – so then he goes – Steven says to me, so you got that office over at Disney? And I was like, yeah. He goes, ah, you know, after I'd written that, he said, you know, you should just be over here. You shouldn't be over there. You should be over here. He said, you can keep that office at Disney, but I want to give you an office here. So he gives me an office in this thing called Movies While You Wait building. And you can probably Google it and see it on. It's it's a, it's the building attached to his. It's it's the it's where the director is. So I'm in an office. Next to me, there's three offices. Bob Zemeckis is on one side of me and Barry Levinson is on the other side. And me, who's done nothing. So ridiculous. So, anyway. So. So, yeah, I rewrote it. Rewrote it, storyboarded it, designed the sets, like sat down and with the set designer and mapped out sets together. Like I told him I wanted the opening shot to be a little Citizen Kane homage. So I wanted to come down, down, down through the snow, have the credits all the way down on the set and then land on the window and have Santa wipe. So that was all designed. That shot was designed. The opening shot of the show was designed before he even built the set. Then I explained how I wanted the interior of Santa's castle or whatever you want to call it to to be a long take just tracking right to left right to left right to left with no cuts because steven's favorite thing in the world for those of you that ever have a meeting with steven spielberg immediately start talking to him about long take masters without an edit a la john ford or a la um uh, orson wells particularly citizen kane and he will or, or touch of evil and he will flip out because uh, the only course he told me he ever wanted to teach in film school was called the masters and he said, and everyone would come to the everyone would come to the course thinking he was going to teach about John Ford and Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock, you know, the master directors. He said no, and they would trick him. He'd say it's not about the master directors; it's about master shots. I think I talked a little bit about this when we talked about Jaws the other day about yep. the long take. So I knew that was his thing. So I wanted the opening two shots, three shots of the show, to be masters without a cut, and because I was just based on our conversations, and I just was doing a little, and he 
flipped out. He loved it. He, he just got such a kick out of it. And the same thing at three o'clock on my first day of shooting, my first shot was like a 200 foot master without an edit. So the first thing he'd see in dailies. So I was playing, you know, it would look, regardless of my earlier comments about not pursuing my vision, I had a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. It was a ball, but you know, being able to look back on it 30, 30 years down the road, you know, I, I kind of wish I had done the same things with my own stuff. But so I was very, very involved in storyboarded the whole thing, storyboarded every shot. He insisted. I'm not big on storyboards myself because they take a long, long time to do. Um, and I just, I prefer to do a shot list because it's in my head. I don't need to draw it, but um, storyboarded the whole deal. So I went through all the boards with him and uh, yeah. So, I mean, I spent six months at Amblin prepping that thing within an inch of its life. Okay. Uh, real briefly for, for again, younger listeners who maybe haven't seen the amazing stories or Santa 85, Brie, just a, just a, without spoiling the, the actual plot of it, what, what's that episode about? Well, I think it's about innocence lost. You know, it's, it's really about, um, which again is kind of a Spiel, very Spielbergian theme. You know, a little boy sees, you know, Santa get hauled off to jail um, because, you know, he gets caught for breaking and entering and and no one in town believes he this is the real Santa. They think he's a they think he's a fake, but it is the real Santa. And the little boy knows it's the real Santa and he is going to bust Santa out of jail. And uh, Pat Hingle, who plays the by just such just such good fortune to get to work with a classic, classic actor. And uh, Pat Engel plays the uh, disgruntled town sheriff who doesn't believe in Santa because he got passed over for a gift long, long ago that he wanted so badly. I, I won't tell you what. And uh, he throws the Santa in jail and won't believe he's the right Santa. And uh, let's just say there's some twists and turns and uh, all is well by the end of the episode. But it's, it's really about lost innocence and about I mean, gaining innocence and retaining innocence. And it's really about the magic and the innocence that that we all still tap into at Christmas time, and uh, it was it was really it was really fun. This was, and we've talked about this before. This was definitely the era before CGI. Oh yeah. And when when I was watching San eighty five was last week. It was a week or two ago. I I, I was furiously emailing you, asking you questions about both episodes. Mm -hmm. But I had a couple questions, and one was, and you answered it earlier when we were talking. But those were real reindeer. Oh yeah. Talk talk a little bit about that. And again, we're not going to spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But I mean, obviously, if they're talking about Santa Claus, reindeer are going to be part of the story. But they were real. Oh yeah, they brought them. They 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 flew in these reindeer from Canada, and it's kind of kind of a funny story because what they did was uh, there's a big big chasing at the end of the the movie between this cop, Pat Hingle, and and Santa and the little boy, and out in a snow covered small town. And so on the back lot of Universal, we snowed in like four city blocks, which is just crazy. And they used uh, a lot of this white sand called gypsum on the ground, and they used foam and blankets and all this stuff everywhere else. Uh, none of us CG extended. There was no such thing. We got the reindeer out there, and they were supposed to. They, we were told the reindeer, the eight reindeer, would be able to pull Santa's sleigh through the through this gypsum. And with the little boy and Santa inside at night. Now, it was, we were filming this uh, actually right after 4th of July that year. And it was a heat wave was coming through Southern California. And it had been like 100 degrees in the day. And so they bring out these reindeer at night. And they look like they've been through hell. Their tongues are hanging out. They look exhausted. I'm, and I say to the trainer guy, I go, uh, 
are those reindeer going to be able to run? They don't, they don't look so good. And he's like, oh, no, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll get going. Don't you worry. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. So they hook them all up. And I've got uh, Spielberg on the set, Kathy Kennedy on the set, Frank Marshall on the set, Bob Zemeckis on the set. They all come down to watch my first big shot on the back lot. It's all lit up. You know, this whole huge thing. They have like three cameras going because the reindeer can only do so many runs. And they're going to whip down the street with Santa and the little boy. So everything's lined up, roll camera, three cameras, A camera, B camera, C camera, rolling, rolling, rolling. All right, here we go. Ready and action. And the reindeer take like three little steps and just go, ugh, and give up. Oh, no. No. They cannot pull that sleigh a yard down the street. And I'm like, cut, cut, cut. And everyone's standing there. And the guy's like, huh? Oh, that's all right. All right let me just check him in there, give him some water. Let's go. We'll go again. We'll go again. And I say, all right, here we go. A, B, C, rolling, and action. The reindeer just go, ugh. They cannot pull the sleigh. I mean, it's over. And I'm supposed to shoot with the reindeer pulling that sleigh all night. We all huddle and talk about what to do. And Kathy and Stephen and Frank, they all drift away. <laughs> they all get in their cars and take off. Because it's like, obviously, not going to happen. And it's on me. And, and it was kind of cool because they didn't come over and, and solve it for me. They were like, all right, well, figure out, you've got stuff to shoot, figure it out, and took off. We did. I, I continued to shoot and I, I, we just changed the scenes. We changed around. We had other stuff we could shoot. Uh, not supposed to be that night, but we, we adjusted and um, I ended up attaching the sleigh to a truck and I did shots within the sleigh you know, within the reindeer, you know, so as, as if I was like on riding the reindeer with the camera and we got a lot of coverage uh, without the reindeer and I did some POV shots without the reindeer and I did because I had my storyboard. So I, you just go through them and do shots without reindeer all night. And I said to the guy, I said, where were these reindeer all day? He's like, oh, well, we had them out in the trailer. You know, we have them out in the reindeer trailer out here on the lot. And uh, I don't know. I said, you mean like a, a metal, like a horse trailer? He's like, yeah, yeah, but they're for reindeer. I was like, it's 100 degrees out today. Like, yeah, well, yeah. So I go to my producer. I say, so we're going to shoot the next night. And I say, well, what's the temperature these reindeer used to? The guy goes, well, you know, I say, you know, 40 degrees, 45 degrees up there right now. And kind of where they usually are. I'm like, okay. So I say, why don't we get a soundstage? Because I'd seen on Spielberg's shoot, he had refrigerated a soundstage for this one scene. So I said, let's put them on a small soundstage, put out some hay and stuff they like to eat or whatever, throw them on the soundstage, refrigerate it down to their temperature all day, it's gonna be 100 the next day again, and then bring them out. Sure enough, we bring them out the next night, they've been in the soundstage refrigerated eating, they bolted down that street like there was no tomorrow, and that's how we got the reindeer shots in the show. But you know, first day the reindeer don't run. What were you thinking that I'm moment? Fired. You're fired. I'm fired, okay. yeah. Oh no, my legs, I will not lie to you, were like jello. And, uh, but I sucked it up. My producer was great, really great guy named David Vogel, very supportive. He did uh, Three O'Clock High with me. He and, he and I continued on together to do my first movie. Uh, he went on to become the president of Disney uh, later on down the road. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone was, everyone was super supportive. But I will tell you, this is a pathetic, embarrassing story, but I will tell you the truth. After we did our first day's dailies, you know, back then it was film and you would shoot and then, and then in the evening you would go to these screening rooms on the lot and watch what you shot the day before. So the next day we went to sh watch what I shot. Normally in dailies, there's like seven, eight, 10 people, you know, just the key people from, from the shoot. I go to dailies, there's like 50 people, it's packed. <laughs> 
Spielberg again, Kathy Frank, everybody to see, you know, they're, you know what the deal is. They're coming to see if I'm a fraud or not. Right. Which, which I get like, and rightly so. It's like, it's packed. It's everyone at Amblin, everyone from amazing stories, production, everyone. Cause they're all like, okay. And I now know what they were thinking. This punk ass 23 year old who's done nothing, got the show. Let's just see what he's got. So the dailies roll, you know, it's about an hour's worth of dailies. And, you know, the lights come up and they all burst into applause. Oh, awesome. Okay. I stand up. You know, everyone person applause. I, I say, thank you. Thank you. I am choking back tears because, not of joy, but because I hated the dailies. I thought I, they sucked. I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever done. I went outside ahead of everyone ran around the corner, sat down on the curb in Universal and burst into tears because I am for sure getting fired now. And I thought everyone was applauding by just obviously like an overreaction to how bad it was. They were like, well, what else can we do? Well, let, let's applaud, you know, because it's just so embarrassing. So I thought they were all humoring me and I thought I was fired and I thought I was done. And I went around the corner and I did burst into tears. And, and, and by the way, I'm not prone to crying. That is not my thing. And so I, I, <laughs> I will admit and I, but I couldn't help it. I burst into tears and, and this guy, David Vogel, the producer, like ran, had seen me run out because I didn't stay and say, thank anyone or talk to Steven. Or, I mean, I bolted, which was a little rude, but I was either that or cry in front of him. So I ran around the corner and cried and he came up to me. He's like, Phil, what, what are you doing? What's the matter? What's happened? I said, oh, my God, I know they were just being nice to me. It was a disaster. That is terrible. I know they stunk. The daily stunk. So many mistakes. So much bad. Oh, my God. He's like, are you crazy? That was real. Like, people are really like, they turned, it turned out really good. It's a good first day. I was like, what? And I just, it just showed, I was just really nervous and, and insecure and hard on myself. And, and um, but yeah, that was my, that was my first little run on that show. <laughs> When do you wrap up filming on that? And then how long before it airs? And then a uh, follow-up question to that is, at what point are you offered the second episode that you did? Ah, so, well, it, it, you know, and it went pretty smoothly from there on out. You know, we, we made all our days. There were no more issues. We had fun. Um, it was like a five or seven day shoot, something in that area. And we, we wrapped it up and, and um, the edit was smooth. There was no drama. I mean, it just, it went together. I again thought I could have done a much, much better job on it than I did. But you gotta remember, I came onto the set, there's this other day where Santa comes through the window and he sees these cookies, you know, have been left for him. And uh, I was driving to work that morning and I went, oh God, I forgot to tell them what kind of cookies I wanted for Santa. So I swung into Ralph's supermarket, grabbed a whole bunch of cookies myself, threw them in the car, raced to make sure I wasn't late. And I came and I said, oh guys, thank God, thank God I brought the cookies. I brought the cookies. And the prop guy, everyone bursts out laughing. And prop guy goes, he wheels in this cart. He's got like 20 different cookies for me to choose from. I was like, what's this? He goes, um, the cookies are my job. I, I'm the one who's supposed to show you the cookies. Like, oh, what's your job again? He's like, I'm the prop guy. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a guy who was going to get the cookies. I thought I was supposed to bring the cookies myself. I swear to God to you. So I was, you know, I'm still in that mode of thinking like it's film school. You know, if I don't bring the cookies, no one's bringing the cookies. And, uh, you know, I think they thought it was probably cute. I found it embarrassing. But um, so that's where I where I was coming from. And I and uh, 
you know, um, it was a great experience. It was a great experience. So we cut cut the show together. And the first thing you do is you take it. It was so cool because the way Steven did it, like you cut it on film, you screened it on film in his screening room on the big screen. Dailies were on the big screen. He didn't treat it like TV. This is like we're making little movies. Showed it to him. He loved it. He said, uh, I know I want to have score this. And uh, he said, uh, there's this new young composer named Thomas Newman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thomas freaking Newman. So Thomas Newman scored my episode. For those of you, I don't know how many times we nominated, five-time Oscar nominated, all the James Bond movies. Um, oh, I, it just goes, look up Thomas Newman. It's ridiculous. The guy is Shawshank Redemption. Yep. Um, he, he scored. He's one of the greatest living composers today, but he was but he was fairly young and new then. So I got to work with Thomas Newman on the score, went over to his house and worked with him every day. And we finished it up and we showed Stephen the final. He turned to me and said, next season, here's your episode. And he handed me the doll. Okay. So before we touch, touch on the doll and for the listeners out there, I, you know, I, I, I always talk about how many, how much of Phil's work I've seen throughout the years. I had actually not seen amazing. I had not seen the amazing stories. I had not seen Santa 85 or the doll until just two weeks ago. Santa 85 was, was just a, it was a delight and I'm not, I'm going to spoil it something. I mean, but it's, it's been more than 30 years, right? But, yep. but there, there, <laughs> there's, it, it was, it was just a delightful movie. And there's a scene where they set the alarm, this high tech alarm in the house. And I just started laughing out loud because I was like, that's so brilliant. I mean, that to me that I'm just fanning, I'm just sort of geeking out a little bit on the show here, but uh, I just thought that was so brilliant. And I'm sure I remember watching amazing stories as a kid, but I was young. And I'm sure I saw that episode, and I was probably the intended age for that episode. That was 85. I would have been seven years old. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I watched that as a kid. It was pretty neat when they when I did the doll. They decided they want to run it again um, in '86. So um, they had me shoot there. So there's an insert on a card. And it says, you know, to, I think Horace, I want to say his name is, I have not seen it in my God, 20 years, but, uh, love Santa 85, like, and as, as one signs cards. So they had me get the exact a new card and, uh, a doubles hand and a little patch of snow. And during the making of the doll, we shot a new insert of the card and it just said to Horace with love, Santa, yeah. no 85, 86 or anything. So they could run it. Um, any year they wanted to from then on as a Christmas special. So I actually ended up doing another insert for it a year, you know, um, um, a year later. I emailed you and asked you what it was like to work with Pat Hingle. And uh, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just share with the listeners what your response was when I, when I said, because I think Pat Hingle is just one of those great character actors. He, oh, yeah. uh, for, if some listeners out there can't put a face to who I'm talking about, he was Commissioner Gordon in Tim Burton's Batman in 1989. And if you're a Stephen King horror film, he he played Bubba in uh, Maximum Overdrive as well. But yeah. uh, but uh, what was he like to work with? Well, you got to remember, I was again at this point. I guess I'm 24 when I finally directed it, and and I looked, you know, I looked 16, and and I just looked like a little kid. And so a lot of actors were a bit surprised. A wee bit surprised that I was going to be their director. For instance, um, Candace Bergen came in to play uh, in, in The Doll. It was in The Doll. But this is just still even a year later. For The Doll, Candace Bergen came in to, 
to meet me for um, a role at the end of the doll, for the big surprise at the end of the doll, just a one day thing. She walked in and she sat down and we're talking and, and she said, so when's the director coming in? And the casting director said, um, this is the director, this is Phil. She's like, this kid is the director? And the casting director's like, yes. She said, um, you know what? I'm a little bit past being directed by children and got up and left. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you gotta understand that that I didn't blame her. I didn't make me mad. I was like, she's right. I mean, you know, I was like, the whole thing was so surreal. I was like, I was surprised anybody was willing to show up. So Pat was kind of like, you know, he'd said yes. They made him the offer. I didn't even have to meet him. And and so we, he's kind of like, ah, okay, ah, who's this guy? Oh, hi, how are you? All right, very good. You're the director? Okay, here we go. All right. And then, you know, I could see Pat was thinking, oh, boy. God knows what I've just gotten myself into. I, my thing has always been as a director, come prepared. I'm not winging it. I'm not making it up as I go. I walk onto the set. I know what I want. I let the crew know what I want. I let the actors know what I want. I got my shot list. In that case, I had storyboards. I'm gonna, it, just do not look or be indecisive because I have enough time and prep to make the decisions I need to make and make it about the work when I'm there. Don't make it about me. He saw that. He was like, at the end of the first day, he was like, oh, well, you really know what you want. Is it really? Okay. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I try, Pat, I'm open. You know, you have suggestions. Yeah, no, no, I like it. I like it. Okay, good. All right. Well, I'll see you tomorrow. And so after the first day, he warmed up and he was terrific. And he has a little monologue in the movie that he does to Santa at the jail cell that I thought was really touching. And he dove right in and he went for it. And I think he saw we were trying to do something a little special. And it was a real boost to me. And uh, I think everyone else saw it because he was the old pro on set. It was a, it, it was just, it was a real treat. So he, he, I, he, I, he started out skeptical, but the way I've always won over skeptical actors or skeptical anybody is by being pre ready. Because I think that people want the director to direct. They don't want the director to come and go, huh, so what do you guys think we should do? Oh, That is not what anybody wants. As much as people tell you, oh, we want to collaborate. Yeah, they want to collaborate with a point of view. They do not want someone who's wishy-washy and figuring it out as they go. So as long as you come in ready for those filmmakers out there, know what you want, let people know. You can always be flexible and change and adjust. But if you, you, you get on that horse and ride it, people will respect you. Okay. So for as, as much as I really enjoyed Santa 85... As, as, as I just had a great time watching it. I then went to watch your second one, The Doll. And again, I stress, I really, really like Santa 85. But I loved The Doll. Mm -hmm. And for, for one reason, I mean, it was, of course, it was incredibly well done. But John Lithgow, the performance he gave in that episode, I mean, I could have watched an hour and a half. I could have watched a feature-length film with that character. It was, it was incredible. So let's talk a little bit about the doll. Its history was it was originally written for the Twilight Zone. And the twi last season of the Twilight Zone by Richard Matheson, who was, you know, one of the writers on that show, a legendary writer. The show got canceled its last season, so it never got produced. Stephen had picked up the option, bought it, and again, handed it to me. And in this case, of course, I did not need to ask to rewrite a single word because it was ready to go. And it was a little bit darker and a little bit like a little bit 
more moody and and lonely, let's say, or spooky uh, than most Amazing Stories, because it, again, it was original Twilight Zone, which was slightly different in tone. But but Stephen was so excited to have an original Matheson script. I don't remember whose idea it was to go to John. It was probably Stevens. You know, he'd been so great in the world, according to Garp before that. And uh, they offered it to him. And John is one of the all time great guys. One of my all time favorite actors I've ever worked with. He is as anything you've ever seen him speak. You've ever seen him, you know, um, interviewed. He, that's who he is. He's just the most generous, sweet, but intelligent, experienced, knowledgeable, um, professional guys you'll ever get a chance to be on a set with. And he really gave me a tremendous boost as a director and, and, and learning how to work you know, with an actor such as himself. I think he went straight off at the show to do Miss, Miss Saigon on Broadway. I mean, he's, he's, you know, has he ever been bad? I mean, John, John could read the phone book and be great. So it wasn't like I had to do a lot of work to make him great, but he just listened and supported me, collaborated with me. And just, it was so enjoyable. We laughed. He, he would just bring so much to it. And I really realized what John showed me is that when you cast up, like when you, when you're able to get talent, and apply that talent to the role, it can grow and and become this other thing that was you know never on the page even. Um, versus, you know, you, you cast to it or below it, you know, it can even be less than the page or just what's on the page. But when you cast a, you know, you kind of punch above your weight, so to speak, with someone like John, it takes on a whole life of its own. You mentioned when you were shooting Santa 85, you know, the, the incident with the reindeer, not, uh, not basically being able to pull the sleigh. Was your confidence a little bit higher going into the doll? Was there any onset mishaps or situations where you were like, oh, here we go again? Or did things go, a, you know, for lack of a better term, just smoother second go around? It went a lot smoother second go around. My confidence was much higher. Um, it was also technically an easier show to shoot. You know, Santa 85 had, you know, action and children and, uh, you know, chase scenes and, and you know, escapes from prison and, and uh, more, many more moving parts in Santa 85. And also um, The Doll was a cheaper episode. It was mainly interior. Um, it was just a much more controllable. It was really a performance-driven piece. Yeah. Um, and John's in almost every scene, and, and if not every scene. And, and it's, you know, so it really was anchored around him. So it was a much easier show to shoot than the first one so it went very smoothly you know again when it when it was over we just cut it together and almost you know the first or second cut we were done we were done to time steven approved it and and we were kind of off and running and to where john went on to win an emmy for best actor for it what was that i mean what was your reaction to that i mean you you had directed it i mean you this... well yeah i was uh i was in new york i'd already i was in new york casting um three o'clock high and uh, so I was watching it on TV in a hotel room and and I, of course, knew he was nominated and he won and he got up and said, oh, and I want to thank Phil Juano. Remember that name, he said. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. 
So it was a really neat thing for him and 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 for myself and and you know he, he ended up coming back because uh, he was doing Miss Saigon by then and and uh, I saw him that week and we kind of celebrated together. It was a really it was really special. Uh, I maintained that relationship with him for you know many years after and and uh, God so I got to work with him you know. I did these uh, 3D dream sequences for he asked me to do for Third Rock from the Sun, where I directed four 10-minute uh, dream sequences that were actually in 3D on television as a big hour-long special for the show. And uh, he asked me to do those. So we got to work together again and had a, had a ball. The doll comes out. It's successful. What happens when you're told... Amazing Stories is now, it's it's going off the air. Were you given fair warning about that? Did you think, did you envision where this show was going to go on for many more seasons and you were going to get opportunities to direct several more episodes? And did it come as a surprise or a shock when they canceled the show? No, it was it was kind of generally known that season two was going to be the last season because of the costs. Okay. It really wasn't even about ratings. It was just that Universal was eating... The network paid so much. I want to say it was NBC paid so much per episode and then Universal paid the rest and they weren't making, they weren't able to cover their costs. And it was taking up a lot of Steven's time um, away from movies. And um, before it even was official, uh, he had already offered me um, three o'clock high. So by the time the episode, you know, was aired and the season was running its course, um, I had already shifted over to doing my first movie. So for me, it was actually, it's funny. It wasn't like, oh, everyone was hoping for a 10-year run. I think that the mood around the second season was like, this is, and you know, and he was trying to get all these feature directors to come in and do them. And, you know, so it was a lot of heavy lifting there for him and getting these guys in. And then when they came in, of course, they didn't want to be limited financially and time and money. So it, 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 I, I just think everyone understood like, wow, this experiment was good fun, but unsustainable. Interesting. Until now, on Apple TV, they yep. bought it. Yep. Apple TV's bringing it back. The first time we ever t chatted about, almost close to three years ago, you you, you <laughs> should. Wow, it's been three years. It, yeah, it's it, it's it was 2015. Oh. Yeah, late wow. late 20. Let's well, get it's getting. Wow. You told you're the, right. You're right. That's when the veil came out. You told the story about Spielberg offering you three o'clock high. Yeah. It's a fantastic story, and because I want people to check out the back catalog, I won't ask you to share it again, because you just go back and, and and search through the episodes. It's it's three quarters of the way down, but it's there. It's a great story. But I, 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 I didn't put two and two together when it came to Casey, and, and um, I, I watched Spielberg's episode about the, the mission. Yes. Okay, and, and, and Casey, who's in the, 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 in the belly. Is that how you met him? Yeah, I mean, Stephen... It was really funny. Casey was in the mix on Three O'Clock High from the very beginning because of uh, having worked with Stephen and been so terrific in that episode, which I also watched Stephen direct on set. Mm -hmm. He had that giant plane on the set and and the bomber and the the you know he had Kevin Costner in there and he had Kiefer Sutherland and he had Casey and it was just a really cool. It was awesome, and yeah, so I got to know all those guys hanging out, and so I like you know we all liked him. I think. What took so long is I Steve was trying to recapture the Back to the Future lightning in a bottle. He wanted the next Michael J. Fox. And Kirk Cameron almost got the part, being being that guy. I don't remember why he didn't. I, I don't I think he was I think it might have been a money thing. I think that he was like big enough and Steven was like didn't want to pay. I, you know, I I really I think that could be wrong so long ago. But it's because it's funny when things don't work out, you tend not to track 
why, but I know he was in the mix. And so I think, you know, Casey was probably a little bit more quirky than, than, you know, the Michael J. Fox prototype. And so we looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and looked at unknowns and looked at knowns. And, and this, every time we'd have auditions or every time we put him on tape, he was the funniest. And finally, everyone just was like, look, he's the best. He's the best. He, he earned it. He's the guy. He's the best. He's the funniest. And, you know, Zemeckis loved him too. You know, I'd worked with him a little bit on Back to the Future. And, you know, he put in two cents. And uh, so, yeah, so Casey got the gig. But it was, it was, uh, he was in the mix from the very, very beginning. But it's just, you know, I, I think they kind of wanted that All-American. And, uh, you know, Casey Shamashko was kind of the right. Polish-American, you know, nerdy <laughs> kid. And, but he was funny as hell. And, and I was, I was, I loved working with him. And, and again, we did, we did talk about the, we, we talked extensively about three o'clock high during our first conversation. Sure. But, uh, you know, there, there, there the are a phone call from China. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. The phone call from China. There, there are a few more follow-up questions. So this, this is kind of, think of this as there, there's a prequel episode of our conversation that exists. Yeah. So these are some follow-up questions. What were your thoughts when three o'clock high was going to have a blu-ray re release and you were approached to record a commentary track. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I was wondering uh, about that. Yeah. I didn't want to do it. I, you know, it's, it's hard so long ago, you know, like talking to you about it, just, you know, off the cuff is fine. It's yeah. a conversation. Yeah. Watching the movie again and kind of trying to go back in a time machine. I mean, had I done it two, three years after that have been one thing. It'd have been fresh in my mind. I'd have had all these anecdotes. I'd have been, you know, I mean, it still would have been engaged. But when you're looking back, it's like a little bit like someone saying, you know, let's go back and look at your freshman year of high school. You're kind of like, well, I don't know what I did my freshman year of high school. What the hell? Oh, no, it's okay. We've got a film of it. You can review it as we go. And you're like, I don't know if I want to review my freshman year of high school. And so, but, you know, but in the end, they were great. The guys interviewed me and they were so enthusiastic about it. And, and it was, it ended up being fun, but I'm not big on watching my old work and, and critique. I felt the same way when they asked me to do state of grace, they did a Blu-ray on state of grace recently. It was like this two in the same year. And I felt the exact same. I got the Blu-ray. I've never listened to it, but I, but that commentary, I think I even get fairly melancholy through the, through the goddamn thing. I'm, I'm just, you know, kind of like, well, was, yeah, wow. Too bad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, I gotta bum me out watching it again, but I, I, so I don't really, uh, get a ton of pleasure after uh, out of reviewing my, my, my past work. So it was, I was reluctant. I've had several people just, just not to go off on a compl completely different subject here, but I've had several people reach out to me and say that our conversation about State of Grace belongs on that DVD release of that film. They said, mm. they, said, they, said they got way, they, they just said that that was such an eye-opening uh, look at the film. So just for anyone out there, you know, if you, if you don't have a copy of the, you know, uh, you know, a commentary track for State of Grace, there's one out there. It's, it's Phil there and is. I. There's Phil and I discussing it. So just it was just by the way much more fun for me than doing the one while watching the movie. Right. Because I can get like going back in my mind is fine. Going back while you're watching it is weird. It's just because your brain is getting caught up with how you made it and how you shot it and what you liked and what you didn't like and good memories and bad memories. So that was a good thing. Because it's really weird watching a movie. And I've never talked to another filmmaker about this, but for me, when I watch my films, when they're all done, 
not while I'm still putting them together. When I'm all done, all I see, or all I don't even really, is it takes me back to what happened the day I was shooting those scenes. Oh yeah, that was the day we had trouble with this, or you know, they they wouldn't open that road, or the lighting went wrong, or the actor was late, or this, that, and the other. And and so it's really weird. I don't see the movie as a movie anymore. I see it almost like a scrapbook of memories. So it's very odd. So this is much better, just talking about it rather than watching it. So then there's a question that I've been meaning to ask you for over a year now. I saw a trailer for a movie called Fist Fight about a year ago. And I said to myself, I've seen this movie before. And I'm just wondering if you can comment or if you don't want to, I'll I'll cut this out. No, 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 it's a little bit of a funny story on that. Okay, okay, please. Okay, so so for those who don't know, Fist Fight is a movie that stars Ice Cube and Charlie Day. And uh, I just seek out the trailer. Seek out the trailer because I'm telling you when I watched the trailer, I said, I've seen that movie already. So please talk a little bit about Fist Fight. I'm walking out of a restaurant one day, year and a half ago or something, and this producer guy who I'd met a while ago, Phil, I said, oh, hey, he goes, oh, my God, I can't believe I bumped into you. I said, did you know we're remaking your movie? And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, we remade 3 O'Clock High. I was like, what do you mean you remember? It's news to me. I was like, you remember 3 O'Clock High? He goes, well, you know, let's say it's inspired by 3 O'Clock High. Because see, 3 O'Clock High was made for Universal, and this movie, Fist Fight, was made for New Line. So they couldn't really say it was a remake, but that's what he said. And I was like, oh. He goes, yeah, it's inspired by a movie, and it's, it's, you know, the bully after school and the fight and the whole thing. I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, but it's two teachers. (laughs) I was like, What? It's two teachers. So, because I, I knew nothing about it. And um, so, yeah, I, I uh, finally, I got it on DVD. I didn't, I didn't go see it in the theater. And because, and, um, again, like I said, revisiting anything related to my work is not high on my agenda. So, but I said, oh, well, we got to see what they did. So we got it. And we got a kick out of it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I love Charlie Day. I mean, I love Charlie Day. He cracks me up. I think he's so freaking funny. The movie is what it is. But what I got a big kick out of where there were moments where they literally took shots that I would only know, you know what I mean, straight from 3 o'clock high. You know, as, as homages, like, you know, certain track-ins on a clock or the big build-up to the fight at the end, kids coming out of the hallway and this, that, and the various shots of, like, I have these shots in the movie of people up in windows cheering, and th- these were shots straight. I mean, literally, like, we're going to do little homages to 3 o'clock high, and I was like, oh, my God, who would have thought? 1987, you know, 2017, I think it came out maybe. Who would have thought 30 years later that there was like even an echo? You gotta understand when Three O'Clock High came out, it was, you know, people like to say, well, it was like quiet as crickets. It was like crickets. No, this was a night without crickets. This was zero noise, zero sound. I mean, talk about a tree falling and no one hears it. This movie didn't even blip the surface of the film world. Um, it was just, I think it grossed all like $20. And, and, uh, so for it to even someone even to be mentioning it to me, let alone there being even, like I said, an echo is bizarre because I just figured it just goes to show you how you never know. I just figured that thing was dead, gone, buried, never to be heard from again when its run was over. I mean, it's like one week run. But you never know. Weird. Uh, listen, it's a movie we all talk about. I mean, I it's. I, it, know. <laughs> I know. We've talked about it at, at exhaustive I, lengths. I know. It's just weird. It's just weird. I, you know, 
it's it's like same thing with State of Grace. I mean, State of Grace came out in I don't know, like thirty theaters. It was only out for uh, two total weekends. You know, the company was going bankrupt, and I'm not. By the way, it wouldn't even matter if they were going bankrupt or not. I don't think the movie was ever going to make any money. And it was just again, it took I think ten years for it to make it to DVD. So you know, you just say to yourself, talk about gone. I mean, peak blockbuster, you know, rentals, and it's not in the. It's, you can't rent it. You can't get it. I remember there was only one store I knew of in all of LA that had a VHS of it. And uh, then it disappeared. And I said to the guy, where'd it go? And he goes, oh, someone stole it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think about these shout factories and these, these companies that are just re-releasing, you know, Blu-ray versions of not just your films, but a lot of movies in the eighties that, uh, you know, you just, what are your thoughts on this? Cause it seems like every day I follow them on social media, the different social medias. Uh, and it, it, I'm just like, Oh, well, oh, they're putting that out on Blu-ray and, Oh, that's yeah. great. I mean, that's great. And I'm, I'll say to myself, that's great because I'm a collector. I like to collect, tangibly sure. collect, collect these items. Sure. So. Well, <clears throat> I think, that, yeah, I think it's great too. And I, what's weird is like, for instance, like last I looked, someone told me and then I went to see if it was true. Like you can't get State of Grace on Apple, like iTunes and it's not on Netflix. So people say, oh, how can I see State of Grace? And for the longest time, it was pretty tough because the regular DVDs were gone. They weren't making them anymore and they were hard to find. Yeah, you know, to buy one on Amazon or something like mm -hmm. that. And, and, and then this Blu-ray came out. So now and it's really well done and it's really nicely reproduced. And the same thing for three o'clock high. And it's really great. I mean, I don't know how many people are popping things into their Blu-rays anymore, but I think for people who love, I am, yeah. I am totally like when I want to see a movie, you know, I have three little kids, so I don't get out to the movies as much as I used to, um, for all the obvious reasons. And, and man, but I got a, beautiful freaking TV that's tweaked within an inch of his life. And I put on Blu-rays. I don't, I don't stream and download this stuff. I Blu-ray it. And that's the way I like to do it. So I'm thrilled that, that that medium is still at least for now a thing. Well, we had mentioned before we started recording, um, that I had seen solo. I mentioned that mm. I saw solo today in the theater. And if there's one thing I can comment, cause I'm going to do a little episode on, on, on my thoughts on the film, but is it looked a little blurry on screen. Like, it just hmm. things look, things just look slightly out of focus. And that might have to do with the projector that was in sure. the particular theater that I'm seeing. And I'm always reminded when I see a movie in the theater and then subsequently watch it on Blu-ray, how much better the picture quality seems to be on the Blu-ray on my big television versus going to see it in the theater. Although, I still love going to the theater, though. It's not a knock against yeah. the movies. No, I know. And I, I'm real, look, you're talking to a guy who, when I was a kid, there were still double features. Now, I'm not that old. I'm not <laughs> in my eighties, but the point is, I mean, they were only, only a couple of years, but, but you know, there was no rental. Then there were VHSs. Then there were DVD. Then there were, no, no. And then there were laser discs. And then which I had a whole collection of that went uh, into the dumpster. And then I had, you know, my DVDs and I had my Blu-rays. And now we have streaming and downloading and blah, blah, blah. I love the movie theater as much as any guy. But the theatrical experience has been degraded. It's it just has. And you know one of the things that's degraded it? Sorry. I love technology as much as anybody. I love my iPhone. Don't get me wrong. But that whole iPhone, iPad thing has screwed up the theaters. Everyone's on their damn phone. They're glowing down in front of you. 
people are texting, you know, it's just like, I, I say, you know what, I'd rather control the environment yeah. myself. And I know that sucks. And I know that's terrible. But it's the truth. I, it, it's slowly but surely wrung the enjoyment out of the theatrical for me. And you're right, when I get it, like the way I want it, it's quiet, no one's messing with me. You know, the kids are asleep, and I put it on, and I've got my surround, and I've got my, you know, I still, I still watch on a plasma. I don't, I don't, uh, I still think that's the best looking. Um, I have a Pioneer Elite that's just like you can't get any more that are. Anyway, I like it. I'm happy with it. Is it the same? Is it so? When I went and saw Close Encounters, the re-release in the Dome, is it the same? Hell no. But that's the Dome. And I can only drive into Hollywood so many times a year and get to the dome. But I'm not talking about the dome. I'm talking about like the local AMC yep. near me. That's what I'm talking about. If you're going, if you're going to some A plus plus near your house, great. Then you're then you like I would go to the dome every for every movie if I could. But I just think exhibitors have lost the plot. I think viewers have have, have are no longer respect the experience. It's not you know, and so everyone thinks it's their living room. To me, eight out of ten times I come away from a theatrical experience annoyed. That's my that's for me. I do a whole series on my podcast called the Movie Theater Rant, and I'm up to part seven, where 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 it's literally every bad experience that I have, and I'm cursed. I mean, I'll please check those episodes out because they get progressively worse and worse and worse. And not to spoil the latest episode, but two weeks ago I went to the movies. I was the only one in the theater when when the trailers were playing, I was sitting way in the back. I had a black shirt on. You couldn't really see me. And two guys walked in probably in their early twenties. They didn't see me. They thought they had the theater to themselves. They began to treat the theater like it was their living room. Now, maybe it was the movie in question, which was super troopers Two, but 15 minutes into the movie, they lit up a joint right there in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I look, I, I'm very liberal when it liberal minded when it comes to it's marijuana. Not, it's not the place. Yeah. I, so light up. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't care if you smoke pot. I don't care. That's not the point. It's not the place to light up a cigarette, a joint, right. anything. Shit. It's not the place to vape. So, so I, I, but they won't shut up. Yeah. That's my big thing. So finally yeah. in a very sort of deep voice, they can't see me. I go, all right, guys, that's enough. Keep it down. And I scared, I must've scared them. Because they got up and just ran out. They got up and oh, just ran out of the theater because they, they thought they were in there by themselves. So 10 minutes later, the theater usher comes in to do their their 30 minute check of the auditorium. And all you smell is weed in there. Yeah. And I'm the only one in there. So I mean, right. I put myself in a very compromising That's situation. Hysterical. Next thing you know, management's coming in and they're looking at me. I'm going, no, 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 no. It wasn't me. Check the replay. So that so, is hysterical. They framed you. They did. They not only ruined the, they only ruined the experience for you. They framed you. So, <laughs> so yeah. That's just, the point. Exactly. I just, I've gotten to where it, I, I, I just, I hate to admit it. I really do. I, I like choke on the words, but I've gotten to where, um, you re, it's really glad, gotta be like, I'm not going to go see solo in the theater. I went to the last one. I went to the last Star Wars movie. And I said, after that, you know what? I'm gonna see the rest at home. That was my reaction. I said, fine, love, you know, Star Wars fan of the core. Was there the first screening the first day in 1978 at Avco Center Cinema to see the first Star Wars movie. And uh, so you cannot get more diehard than that. 
And uh, I'm like, ah, I'll watch Solo on DVD. I'll watch it on Blu-ray. Yeah, you probably it's have fun. a bet. Now, they have this thing called iPix here. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's like super expensive, cushy seats, quiet, blah, blah, blah. But really, I'm going to spend like $65 to go see a movie? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just not. It's just, it's nice. It's good. It's because it's expensive. People are quiet because they, you know, but guess what else they do? They serve dinner in there. <laughs> they serve, people are eating taquitos and crap during my, like I, if I wanted the smell of Mexican food during my film, <laughs> I would go watch a movie in a Mexican restaurant. It's so again, even though it's all she, she and da, 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 their waiters are bringing dinner in during the movie. Yeah. Eh, wrong. No, not for me. So well, it's my- just, you know what? Look, look. They, they're driving us all to our private screens. You know, the, the theater revenue is down. I don't care what the what the, the, the trade papers say about, you know, Avengers making $2 billion. Theater attendance is down year after year after year. And, you know, just the other day when I was there, or even today, I'm standing in line to get a popcorn. And I'm looking up at all these new menu items that this my local Regal Cinema has. <laughs> flatbreads and artisan sandwiches and all these things that probably take six or seven minutes to prepare and I'm and, and they're expensive as all can be and I'm saying you know why can't they just police the theater and prevent people from being disruptive inside the theater I mean their idea of making of bringing the revenue up is is more items at the concession stand don't they understand a person like me 10 years ago I went to the movies three to four times a week at 52 weeks a year. I, sure. go, I go three times a month at best now. I mean, they're doing nothing to attract me back to the theater. And I, I would. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's it's crazy. You're their core audience. You're their core audience. You, 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 you have a podcast about it. I think that what it reminds me of a little bit is uh, I sometimes go and write in my uh, local public library. And, you know. What's the deal in the library? You're not supposed to talk. You're not supposed to be commotion. It's supposed to be quiet in the library. Well, kids come in while I'm writing, and they're talking. They're watching their phones with the sound up. They're screwing around. Librarian doesn't say a word. Okay, so it's a little bit like the movie theaters. Why doesn't the librarian say a word? Because no one's going to the library anymore. They don't want to alienate one single kid. They're like, fine, let them come in. Let them eat. Let them talk. Let them screw around. But at least they're coming in. Because everyone's using the internet, this library is going to go away if we don't even get keep our customers. It's the exact same thing in movie theaters. Yep. They don't want to alienate the talkers. They don't want to alienate the loud, crunching eaters. They don't want to alienate the people that bring their seven-year-old child to an R-rated movie because they need everybody they can get. So why, they're not going to police it for you. No. They're going to make sure everyone they can humanly keep as a customer can be kept. And it's just like the library because they know – they're a sinking ship now. Obviously, libraries and movie theaters will all be around for a while, a long time, all that stuff. But let's face it, the experience is no longer revered. And that's the difference, man. We just don't have the theatrical experience is, is not respected. Well, you'll be happy to know that uh, uh, across the country here in Florida, uh, I used to like to go to the library when I would do research uh, for this podcast when I'm doing you know, the history of particular films. I mean, I, I spent 10 hours there one time when I was researching for the Titanic episodes. It's awesome. But I don't go anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can only be asked 
six or seven times, hey, man, can I use your computer to log in Facebook? Can I check your face? And I'm just like, you know, this is hap- this is happening. I'm all. You yeah, yes, I'm at, I'm, at a ta- I'm at a table. I've got my headphones on. I'm typing an outline for a particular podcast. And a gentleman sits down next to me, which is a little odd because there was 20 yeah. open seats. Yeah. And he just says, hey, uh, excuse me, uh, would you mind if I just logged into my Facebook account on your computer real quick? And that was that was the point where I said, "What what's going on?" This same, yeah. So yeah, so yeah. yeah. My, well, this I had to wear headphones of mine too. Every single day I'd go to write there. I mean, I would have to put headphones on because the library was too loud. <laughs> and so now it's the theater experience. And if I'm in the theater experience, and I'm and it's I'm being annoyed, and people are doing stuff, and I can't concentrate on the film, or you know they're just distracting me, or whatever. I go, why am I not just watching this at home a month from now? What's the point? Which is where we're heading anyway. So yeah. no, you're right. And, and we're we're gonna cover that when we do our business of uh, business yes. of film twenty eighteen episode, yes. which which I think will yes. if uh, if we're keeping the schedule means we need to record it next month because that's when right. we did last year's one. So right, good. Well, you know it'll be good. Maybe we should do it at, toward the end of the summer. So that way we can talk about the business of film and let's see how the summer plays out. Because it's always interesting to watch. The summer is always a great litmus test for where things are at. And we'll already know what the fall is going to bring. So maybe toward the end of the summer would be better so we can really say, okay, look, you know, we started out with Solo and, you know, and Avengers and, and Black Panther. And let's see where we end up. Is there anything, anything in the, in the near, near future that's coming out theatrically that you just like, yep, I have to go see it. Or are you just. Yeah, that R-rated Muppet movie, man. Yeah, Come that, on, have you yeah. seen that trailer? You know what? That was so freaking funny. Sesame, they're, they're suing. They're getting sued right now. I know, it's awesome. What, talk about the best publi- publi- excuse me, publicity ever. possible. No, ever. It's just, I, I, I don't know if it can be as funny as the trailer, but the trailer is hysterical. Yeah, so that. And, and so that that's the one that's the one that I, because again, it's like, where am I going to see that? Nowhere else. That looks really funny. But uh, other than that, not really. So yeah. not really. Not that I can think of. That's it. I mean, I'd have to look at the. I'd have to look down the road a little bit, but nah. And I just think you know, it just kind of feels very reach. Movies to me just feel very retreaded, just retreading and retreading and retreading the same stuff, and and so it just doesn't hold that much interest. I mean, the fall always you know gives you a shot, a little shot in the arm, but the summer's pretty. Not very original. Yeah, I, you know, you mentioned the, the the puppet movie. That's the one I'm. I think that's probably the the next movie I'll see in theater. Other than yeah. that, you know, the pod. It just looks like oh. So so Phil, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, I know we're going to have uh, many more opportunities to chat about all things film. I always appreciate <laughs> that you know you taking time out of your schedule. So thank you so much, and we'll definitely talk to you soon. Oh, thank you, Dana. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.